Space Shuttle, this is Flight Safety. This podcast may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle while in motion. You are clear for launch. The following paragraphs are from a fanfiction called O Soul I Said, Have You No Tears? which is part of the Accidental Warlord and His Pack series by today's guest fanfiction writer, Inesplicafix. Vesemir can't really explain why he bothers to write down their names, their dates of death, the enemies which slew them. He doesn't tell anyone, doesn't mention it during the meetings to go over how successful the most recent set of trials were, how many new train witchers survived their first year on the path, how many boys have been brought in, shaky-kneed and wide-eyed, to be broken and remade. The years march on, and the boys come in, and three in ten of them survive long enough to venture out onto the path, and Vesemir buries his love and his grief so deeply that sometimes even he believes that he is made of the dark stone of the mountains, cold and hard and utterly unfeeling. And then Geralt comes to care more in one winter with a question. What about the monsters, who are also men? Witchers kill monsters. That's what they're for. No one can argue that. Some monsters are men. Some men are monsters. That's also utterly inarguable. No one has taken out a contract on the monstrous men of the world, though. And that's the sticking point. The debates rage on into the winter, and Vesemir stays out of them at first. He listens, and he watches, and he sees the fire that Geralt has always had burning brighter and brighter. Righteous rage like a bonfire. Sees Eskel always at his dearer-than-brother's side, faithful and steady and fierce. Sees the way Geralt's argument seems to light something in many of the wolves. Some long-dormant spark, smothered by years of pain, dampened by every curse spat at their heels and coin shortened from their pay. Coming alive again now at the idea that they could be more than reviled mercenaries. Could make a difference in the world that lasts. It's that, in the end, that sways Vesemir. The idea that the boys he sends out on the path, who die and are forgotten, killing monsters that are replaced with other monsters almost before their corpses are decayed, might, might make a true difference before they die. The idea that he can promise the children who know that seven in ten of them will die in the trials that if they live, there's something more than a life of pain and misery ahead of them. When the wolf school votes on whether to follow Geralt or continue the way they've always been, Vesemir votes last. And he knows as he rises that Geralt and Eskel and the witchers clustered behind them, the ones who dare to hope for something more, are sure he'll vote against them. Will put the full weight of his reputation, the respect every witcher he's ever trained holds for him, on the side of tradition. If he does, he knows. Tradition will carry the day. Vesemir weighs his words carefully, looking around the long hall to catch every pair of cat-slitted eyes, 
looks past the witchers to the trainees, pressed against the wall, watching their future be decided, thinks, let their deaths be worth something, and does not know if he means the trainees staring at him in tense anticipation, or the ranked shades of his dead, name after name scratched down in faded journals, forgotten by everyone but him. Witchers kill monsters, he says firmly. It is what we are made to do. Geralt has identified a type of monster we have not previously hunted. He turns and inclines his head to Geralt, just a little. Lead us in this new hunt, White Wolf. The world changes. It is often baffling, frequently dangerous, always new and startling. Vesemer never, in all his long years, regrets those words. He still writes down the names of the dead, but now there are so many fewer names. And when they fall, he is not the only one who cares. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Today's guest fan fiction writer is Inesplicafix. She has been a member of AO3 under this screen name since 2020 and has 214 works posted there on AO3, mostly for The Witcher. Inesplicafix is a librarian with a bachelor's degree in English literature focused on pre-1600s literature, which she says does inform her writing. When she isn't writing, she loves swimming, collecting obscure trivia about strange animals, hell yes, putting together puzzles and playing RPGs, and to no one's surprise, she tends to play paladins. Inesplicafix, welcome to the Fanfic Maverick. How you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I have wanted you to come on for ages, so this feels like one of those dream come trues for me. So we're going to have a super, super fun time. It's also been a while since I've been able to talk about The Witcher on the podcast. So all around, I'm just super excited for all of this today. <laughs> so, so the first thing that I always like to dive in here on FFM is um, I love to hear people's origin stories with fan fiction because everybody's story is slightly different. I want to hear all about yours. How did you discover fan fiction for the first time? I want to know, like, do you remember what it felt like reading your very first fic? I actually don't remember what it felt like because I think I was 12 or 13, which was a long time ago now. I am of the generation that grew up with Harry Potter. And of course, these days, Rowling's transphobic bullshit has turned that nostalgia extremely bitter. But that was the first fandom I ever interacted with in a meaningful fashion. The book came out and there wasn't any more book and I wanted more book. And there was more book on the internet. Look, they're kissing. <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah, so you went to the internet for more content. I did. I love that. So was this then the late 90s that we're talking about? Yeah, it would have been the late 
90s, very early 2000s that I was really starting to get into fandom. I was a lurker for a long, long time. I I did not start writing for a while, or at least didn't put anything out into the world. I've always been a writer, but I didn't show anybody. But I, I lurked and I read. And when AO3 became a thing, it had a really interesting impact on me, which was that I know a lot of people stick to one fandom when they're reading fic. They're like, oh, I like this fandom. I'm going to read this fandom. And I do that, but I also do, oh, I like this writer. Oh, they've written stuff in other fandoms. I know nothing about this fandom. I'm going to read it anyway. Yeah, because you like the writer and the style and something about the way that they string their words together. I, I like this writer. I trust their writing. I trust the way they handle characters. This looks like an interesting summary. Let's go. <laughs> I love that, though. I love that. I also read a lot of uh, fan fiction fandom blind. And uh, it's so much fun. I feel like you learn a lot about other people's fandoms and other people's communities and things like that doing that. You really do. Yeah. And then you feel like you speak a lot of different fandom languages, for lack of a better word. I don't know how else to say that, but, you know. Yeah. There's different common tropes, different relationship structures that are very common in various fandoms. And it's like, oh, you know, I've picked up enough of the fandom jargon to understand what's going on here. Yes. You kind of like, you know, learn it by osmosis a little bit when you're going in fandom blind like that. But, you know, there's a lot I think that you can glean from just reading fan fiction in different fandoms and things like that. I love that Harry Potter was your first uh, your first fandom because I, I feel like that's such a common story for people of our generation. You sound about my same age here. Because um, I was also discovering fandom online in the very late 90s and early 2000s and things like that. So I don't know if you remember this, but when you went online for more Harry Potter like content, did you have any concept or understanding of what fandom was at that age when you were getting on the Internet? Or were you just looking for, for something? You know, I don't think I had a concept of fandom. I genuinely don't remember how. How I discovered like the first few fix that I found. I assume I was just wandering around on the internet like a slightly baffled fawn, you know? Fandom was a surprise to me, this incredible community of people sharing stories. The way that it does become a community, despite the fact that everyone's using pseudonyms and everyone's communicating through text, usually, especially back then when we didn't have easy video chat. And yet we still managed to build a community with its own norms and expectations. I've seen a couple times on Tumblr, the comment about fandom being one of the few places where you can be like, happy birthday, I wrote you porn. <laughs> Completely normal, right? <laughs> that's normal. Like that's, that's, it's not even, it's not a sexual gift. <laughs> right. It's just, right. I know you like this. I gave you a thing. It happens to be your favorite kink. <laughs> yes yes the the number of times i have seen that comment you know in the author's comments on a fake or on tumblr or wherever i'd be rich right now exactly if I, you know <laughs> i had a nickel for every time <laughs> the the storytelling of it hooked me in but also the community even being a lurker being able to look at this community and go okay these are you know there, there's norms there's customs this is a society kind of being built out of 
out of very little and with very little in-person communication. Yes. And isn't that fascinating? They basically are built around language. We're using language to communicate with each other. We're using language to create these stories. And we communicate with each other with these stories as well. There's a lot going on here. And it's all being built around language. Like you said, you know, text was how we communicated with each other back then. And in some respects today, even we still do that with building fandom and, and everything. So it's fascinating, isn't it? That yeah. something so small and innocuous can create these vibrant communities online. It's fascinating. It's very cool. Do you remember back, you know, when you were a teenager, do you remember what you thought about fan fiction? I remember feeling... So you know those cartoons of like Scrooge McDuck diving into a pile of gold? Yes, swimming through all of the gold <laughs> on the cartoon. <laughs> it felt a little bit like that, just like this almost embarrassment of riches. Here's this story I like. Here's this world I enjoy. Here are all of these other people who also enjoy that story and that world. And here is this steadily growing horde of stories in every flavor imaginable, in every genre imaginable. And I can just kind of dive in and wallow around like an extremely happy cat in catnip because they're free. People are just giving this to the world. It's great. I love that visual so much. I love <laughs> I'm just I'm picturing it, of course, because, you know, I feel like I was a kid when that cartoon was on and I used to watch it all the time. So like I'm feeling nostalgia right now for that image, right? Because I remember watching that cartoon so much when I was a kid. But I love that visual because it reminds me a lot of how things have changed in fandom spaces because of the internet. I have listened to interviews from people who got into fandom back in, you know, the 60s and 70s and 80s, right? Zines. Yes, zines. Scenes. And so they did have this limited access to fan fiction and things like that, but not the overwhelming like plethora, like the riches and the volume of works that we have today to choose from because of the Internet. So I think that's a really interesting kind of dichotomy of like, oh, yeah, you know, fan fiction has existed for a really long time, but because of the Internet, right, we just have so much of it that it's like, oh so much cool stuff. <laughs> the internet has made it so much easier for so many people to become part of the fiction writing and reading and communicating community. It's glorious. I love it. Yes. Yes. Technology can sometimes be like a bummer sometimes, you know, but it's also so cool. The things that it can do that are positive are so cool. So the fact that we get to connect with each other in these communities and the fact that we get to share works with the whole world now through the Internet is just so cool. I'm sure that you've had lots of thoughts and opinions on fan fiction over the years. So I like to ask people when they come on about their general opinions on fan fiction as a concept. What makes it unique and special? What would you say makes fan fiction worth writing and reading? Well, so one of my sort of personal theories about the world is that storytelling, the act of storytelling and participating in it as a listener, is part of what makes us human. 
Like it's right up there with cooking our food and walking on two feet and having rotary shoulder cuffs. The late great Sir Terry Pratchett wrote in one of his books that we need fantasy to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. And that really resonated with me. I think everybody tells stories all the time. Um, Most of us were telling little stories. What did you do today? That's a story. What do you want to do on the weekend? That's a story. Those are all stories. Fan fiction is that writ larger because we're telling stories with plots and uh, characterization and, you know, all of the little add-on bits. And it's heir to this incredible tradition of building on and around core stories. And that gets us a lot of the great literature of any culture, really, but I know most intimately about the English literature tradition. You can argue with reasonable strength that things like Paradise Lost, or a lot of Shakespeare's plays, or basically every King Arthur story ever is a form of fan fiction because it's being built off of existing canons. And people are going, but I want to make it my own. We were just talking about how the internet has made it possible for so many people to contribute to that. And that's one of the great things about fan fiction for me is that the entry barriers are very low for fan fiction. You know, at this point, you need an internet-capable device and the ability to put words in a row. It's something that anybody can try their hand at. You can put it out there in the world. You can join this tradition of telling stories that probably goes back as long as there have been people. You can become part of that. And you don't have to get it past an editor. You don't have to get it past a publishing house. You don't have to get it past any sort of review at all. You can just say, here is a story I wanted to tell. Here it is. I think that's immensely valuable to both the teller and the community of readers. Because the more people who can tell stories out loud, as it were, the more points of view, the more takes on a given situation, the more interpretations are available to the world. And that to me is an immensely valuable thing to allow as many viewpoints as possible to be articulated, as many people as possible to see themselves reflected in words on the page, in stories being told. I also think it's important that it's written for free and for fun, that we're doing this for pleasure. I think there are so many things in this world that are being monetized, that are being, oh, you have to do this as a hustle. You have to do this. You know, have have you figured out how to, you know, monetize your hobby? Are you going to sell that? There's some solid scientific literature saying that once you start monetizing something, it loses some of the pleasure. It stops being just fun. Oh, interesting that there's a psychological aspect to that. Yeah. Once you're being paid to do the thing, it stops being as joyful. 
because there's this external pressure. And I love the fact that here is a thing that we're just doing for pleasure. We need that. We need fun in our lives. We need joy. A life without that is not a good life. And so having this community that's based around we're making things because it brings us joy. We're sharing them to bring other people joy. Occasionally that joy is expressed in making other people cry, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) angst is a thing. Yeah. It's joyful for so many of us in a strange way. (laughs) The crying is a joyful kind of cry. I will admit that occasionally I will put up a fic (laughs) and I get a lot of comments that are like, you made me cry. And I'm like, awesome. I did it right. Um (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's exactly the correct response. (laughs) I think that's vitally important to be able to be like, I'm doing this for joy. I'm putting out in the world for joy. It is bringing other people joy. I am telling a story. And by doing so, I am putting more joy into the world. That's a beautiful thing. Oh my God. I love the way that you just put that. I'm doing this for joy and that there's something so vitally important about that, right? Something so vitally important because, uh, you know, the world the way it is, sometimes it feels like it doesn't have enough. Yep. And any way that we can, I don't know, (laughs) pump it up a little bit (laughs) and put that joy back where it belongs, I think is always a good thing. Um, And I love your point that doing it for joy, like there's something so immensely special about that. You know, you were talking about how with fan fiction, it's wonderful because we don't owe anybody. Nobody can tell us what we can and can't do with fan fiction. And I feel like that freedom of expression really lends itself to the deepest truth Not that like writers who do it professionally and get paid don't tell the truth. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that when there are no stakes involved, when you're doing it just for a pure artistic expression, I feel like that's when the deepest truths can just come out because you have nobody to tell you that you can't do it. You've got no editors to tell you no. You've got no audiences to tell you no. It's just whatever you want. And I think there's something so beautiful about that. Oh my gosh. And then what you said about fan fiction being heir to the oldest human tradition that there is. Storytelling, the thing that's been around since humans have been here. And there's something beautiful about that too. I've been so fascinated by that concept for so long, just because, I don't know, I feel like because in our modern society, we've commercialized the act of storytelling to this like point where it's like, ah, it's hard to recognize it sometimes, you know, because it's so commercialized. Um, that it's hard to remember that storytelling is not just for commercial purposes. It's not just for entertainment purposes. I mean, obviously, it can be entertaining and it can be, you know, interesting and a wonderful way to pass time and all of that. But it's also doing other important things for humans and human society besides just being entertaining and besides just, you know, doing all of those things. But um, I've always been fascinated by the fact that storytelling lets us explore ourselves as humans. It lets us explore the experience of being human. Absolutely. It's what makes us human. It's what helps us express being human. It's what helps us understand other humans. Yes. I've always been super fascinated by that, too, that we're trying to understand all of these big, important concepts in the world, our place in the world, our place in the universe. And we do that through storytelling. You know, it's just just how we communicate with ourselves and each other. It is wonderful that we have 
huge groups of people who are just doing it for free. So we have access to all of these expressions and all of these perspectives. You know, we are all Scrooge McDuck laying on a giant pile of coins, you know, because there's just so much of it out there now. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for so many different reasons. But, uh, you know, of course, it's always fun when you get to, I think, participate in that act of storytelling in the particular fandoms that I think mean the most to us and, you know, kind of strike chords with us and everything. Over the years of doing the show, I've talked about a lot of different fandoms that I've been a part of or fandoms that I've enjoyed. And The Witcher is definitely up there somewhere at the top for me. I love (laughs) The Witcher, although I will admit that I'm not one of those people that got into it because of the video game or the novels. So I'm not like a super fan (laughs) like some some of you out there are. Um, I think that's super awesome. The people that got into it that way, I got into it because of, you know, the Netflix show. I had access to that. So I was exposed to that and then just fell in love with the the whole universe and everything. So that's how I kind of got into The Witcher. But I'm curious about your background with it. What's your background with The Witcher fandom? So this is very funny. So I mentioned that I, um, if I trust a writer, I'll read anything they've written, regardless of whether I know anything about the fandom. So back in 2020, as you know, we had a global pandemic start, and my job closed down for about two months because we work with the public, and we were not working with the public, you know? (laughs) And so I went and reread all of Astolat and Dirasudis's Witcher fanfic, and also my Tumblr dash got covered with Witcher gift sets, and... uh, I've never actually interacted with the canon. I haven't seen the show. I haven't read the books. I haven't played the games. Oh my gosh. You haven't seen the show either? Holy crap. Really? (laughs) I've seen a lot of gift sets. I've read a lot of fic. I've wandered around the wiki endlessly. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Because we were talking earlier about, and I can't remember if we were recording when we said this, but we were talking about getting familiar with different fandoms through osmosis. I absorbed it entirely through osmosis. <laughs> oh my god, no, really? I swear oh, to god. My, my brain is blown right now. I cannot believe it. What? So to this day, are you saying to this day you've never seen the show or interacted with any of the other canon to this day? Correct. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead. I'm dead. There's nothing wrong with that. I just have to state that right off the bat. There's nothing wrong with that, you guys, at all. I just, I find it humorous. You know, for those of you who know, and hopefully most of you will know, who are in the Witcher fandom, like, Inesplicafix has written a series that is one of the most popular series that exists in the Witcher fandom. Um, So that just, like, oh, that's just fantastic. That's fantastic that you've never interacted do you ever feel sometimes that that puts you at a disadvantage or have you found that that's an advantage? Oh, uh, little column A, little column B. <laughs> um, <laughs> it definitely means I can put my own spin on things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Without feeling like weird about it because, you know, just do what you want. I didn't join the fandom on purpose. Like, I didn't go, oh, yes, I think I'll be into The Witcher now. You tripped over it. It was like a pothole in the middle of the sidewalk, and you just kind of tripped in. It was a very large pothole, and then I was looking up out of it going, I've written how many words in this fandom? <laughs> what is oh going on here? 
Oh my God. No, that makes it even funnier because, you know, we were talking before recording about how baffled you've been with the reception of the Warlord and his pack series, how everything has just blown up for you. So now to hear that you're just kind of like, you find yourself baffled in this fandom too. Like, how did I get here? <laughs> just, That's it exactly. So to me. <laughs> I was like, I was not looking for a new hyperfocus. I didn't expect it to be The Witcher. I read some fic. I saw some gift sets. I read some more fic. I went, oh, I guess this is a thing now. <laughs> okay, so... Is this this thing that we're talking about just now? Is this well known? I've been reasonably um someone asked me on Tumblr a while back and I I said very clearly, you know, I've never interacted with this. I'm there's a accidental warlord discord server and I'm very clear about it there. I have not been shy about saying, you know, this is this is me not interacting with the canon. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So this isn't like breaking news. This is just no. me being on the periphery of things. Again, you know, I tend to do that. In any fandom I'm in, I'm like so on the peripheries. So I know a lot of things, but lots of like little detail things. I'm just like, I don't know anything about that. So this is just breaking news to me. But that's so fascinating. Okay. So I'll tell you what the advantage is to that, just in my mind. And this is very silly. But one of the advantages to not being like tied to the TV show in particular is uh, you must know by now that they have replaced the actor who plays Geralt of Rivia. Yes, they have replaced Henry with, uh, I've lost his name. I think it's, is it Liam? Liam Hemsworth. And so it's very silly, right? Because it doesn't really change who Geralt is or anything. I've had this like burning sadness in my heart ever since I heard about it. and was like, oh, that's really sad. So, you know, the advantage of not being tied to canon in that way is you don't have to care about that. That's awesome. I do care about it a little bit because my beta, who is the best beta in the fandom, my darling Rose, really likes Henry's Geralt. And so I know she's going to be bummed about it. And so I care because my friend cares. Well, shout out to Rose in solidarity because I too care probably about on the same level. I'm so sad about it. <laughs> but what can you do, you know? I've been telling people that I probably won't be able to watch any more seasons of The Witcher. The last one that came out with Henry as Geralt was the last one for me. I don't think I can do it with a different actor. So Fair. I probably won't watch the new seasons either. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing this whole time and stay the hell out of it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That makes me so happy, actually, that you've never had any interaction with the canon. Uh, it makes me feel better, too. You know, I love that in fandom, we can do fandom any way that we want. And there's all kinds of different ways to do fandom. So you don't have to, like, read all the novels and play all of the video games and watch all of the TV shows to be considered a fan um, you don't have to do anything, really. Like, you can be any kind of fan that you want. And I love that about fandom community is we can do it any way that we want. So not interacting, right, with the canon material at all and just participating in the way that works best for you. I think that's beautiful. And I love that. I will say this is the only canon I've ever written for that I didn't interact with. So this has been like a whole new experience for you, this whole Witcher thing. It absolutely has. <laughs> It's been a new and very strange experience. <laughs> I'm so curious then, like, 
What was it about the stories and the gift sets that drew you closer to that pothole in the sidewalk? <laughs> Where you like got close enough to fall over the edge and fall in. I'm just so curious to know what it was that drew you closer. I'm not 100% sure why this specific TV show, gift sets, meta posts, everything hooked me so hard. It may just have been that it was everywhere on my dash. Like that was when it kind of blew up. It may have been that because it was such a new and exciting show at the time that every time you I went on to AO3 and clicked, you know, refresh on the new stories page for the Witcher fandom, there were three dozen new stories and I could just continue indulging myself in this never-ending glorious heap of story. And I needed that at the time. I was having some very bad mental health reactions to the pandemic. So the distraction was incredibly valuable to me. It may just have been that Henry and Joey are very pretty men. I mean, <laughs> you know, that cannot be understated. Really, though, really, like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, if we're being real, right, if we're being real, like, of course, I enjoy the story and I enjoy the universe and all of that. But like, it doesn't hurt that they're gorgeous. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. It, it does not hurt. <laughs> so I genuinely do not know why this one got its hooks into me. Oh, you know why I love that so much, though? Because we can just snap our fingers now and just attribute it to magic. <laughs> like it was a siren song that just like drew you in. And it was fate. You know, you were just fated, I think. Clearly. That pothole was meant for me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was an inexplicafix shaped pothole that was just always meant to be there and you were always meant to fall in, which, you know, incidentally is how we have ended up here in this very moment speaking about <laughs> and having fun talking about it. So, so it all worked out. But yeah, we're going to talk it down to fate. You know, I told you this story before we started recording, but this episode here, like it means a lot to me because... People may recall that the very first episode I ever did for this podcast was for the Witcher fandom when I was talking to Lemming Dancer. And at the end of her episode, she mentioned Inesplicafix and she mentioned the Accidental Warlord and his pack series. So this has been on my mind for the three years I've been doing the podcast. Here we are going into our fourth year. So this feels really special to kind of come full circle here to get to finally talk about this particular series that was mentioned in the very first episode of the show. I know we wanted to kind of touch on the fact that the prompt from this series <laughs> spawned from a Witcher kink meme. It did. <laughs> yeah, it did. And I just wanted to briefly ask you about that because, you know, I didn't find the kink meme for The Witcher until it was pretty much dead already, which made me sad because I love kink memes personally. I'll participate anonymously. It's my favorite thing. I was wondering if you could just briefly kind of like maybe explain a kink meme because we've never discussed that on the show as far as like what is a kink meme. And then maybe you could just kind of tell us like the experience of finding this particular prompt one day. Sure. So a kink meme, as I understand it, and there may be other iterations, is an anonymous thread or whatever you call it. I, I usually find them on LiveJournal or DreamWith. And everybody is anonymous and people will put up 
scenarios that they really want to see, usually it being a kink meme, they're smutty. And other people will write fills for those scenarios and usually post them in the thread or sometimes post them on AO3 with a link. And you can get an incredible variety of prompts on a kink meme, which is one of the things I love about it, is the immense variety of what people want to see. Everything from really fairly tame, I just really want to see these two characters through the sky's the limit, anything you can imagine. And because it's anonymous, you don't have to be like shy about posting it using your known pseudonym. Yeah, you don't have to censor yourself. <laughs> right. If if you're really into a thing you desperately don't want to talk about in public, you can still be like, oh, well, it's a kink meme. I'm anonymous. Please give me this. So it's like a debaucherous playground for it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's people who... Absolutely you know. playground of debauchery. It's great. Um, I think that's what's always drawn me to it. The vibe of an active kink meme is so joyful it in is. that way. It is. People are just being so debaucherous and funny and anything goes. And then my favorite thing is when you have somebody posting the initial kink meme prompt and then you have all of these people responding to it like, oh, my God, yes, yes, I want to see this. I got to see this. And sometimes they'll add to it and it just... Oh my God, I could sit there all day and just be entertained by the conversations that are going on in the kink meme. (laughs) It's awesome. And for me, it actually also gives a really interesting overview of the characters in the fandom and their relationships with each other, because you can kind of tell from the kink meme prompts how those characters tend to interact in the canon. Oh, so there's some educational... There stuff is. here in the kink but, like if you've you. got like like two characters who are extremely devoted enemies in canon i'm sure you've noticed this the kink meme is going to have a lot of hate sex prompts <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes that is a thing <laughs> and so you can kind of almost backfill your understanding of the characters <laughs> like oh wow this kink meme is full of hate sex prompts i bet they've got something real interesting going on in canon <laughs> Wow. I never thought of that before, that you can sort of reverse engineer what's going on in the canon universe with these characters just by checking out what's going on in the kink meme. That's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> it's fun. And it's it's for me, especially in this fandom, which, as you have just learned, I am not fully immersed in. <laughs> um, it was a really interesting way to learn about characters I maybe hadn't encountered in the gift sets. It's like, who is this person and why do they keep being paired with this other person and hate sex prompts? I feel like you can also kind of tell who the fandom darling is. Oh, absolutely. You know? It's the one who's getting whomped hardest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. The one whomped the hardest is the fandom darling. And uh, that just like that tickles my fancy so much that I just get so amused by it. <laughs> yeah. I like kink memes and I I do like writing smutty little one shots. So I like scrolling through kink memes to be like, oh, hey, can I write a smutty little one shot? And sometimes it doesn't end up being a one shot. So it sounds like one day, one fine day, you are on the kink meme minding your own business. And you must have come across this particular one that spawned Accidental Warlord. Were you thinking originally that this was going to be just a little one shot kind of a deal? I thought... That with a conquering heir, which is the first accidental warlord fic, 
was going to be a standalone. I was like, this is a really interesting prompt for me. I'm gonna write a story that fills it. It turned out to be long enough that it wasn't a one shot, but like it's a standalone. It's done. I'm gonna put it up. It's gonna get five hits and two kudos, and I'm done. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) How little did you know? (laughs) I was wrong. She had never been so wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have never been that wrong in my life. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. See, I can see how you would think that it would be a standalone. That I can see, you know. But, man, did you hit a chord here with this fic. You hit something, <laughs> like, so deep. The fandom funny bone here. You, like, just nailed it. <laughs> jammed a hammer into it. Yeah, exactly. I was telling you, I can't believe like the amount of activity that this uh, series has spawned. And we'll talk about that later. But yeah, like that's just so funny that you thought, oh, yeah, this is just going to be one little standalone. Five hits, you know, couple kudos. <laughs> a drop in the bucket. You know, this is a huge right. fandom. <laughs> it's growing every day. There's a lot of fic. There's a lot of really good fic. I will add this. A couple of people will like it. I will have increased the joy in the world. I can go on with my life. That's not what happened. No, you know, it's like uh, the SpongeBob thing, you know, (laughs) three weeks later, you know, um, and you probably had a mess on your hands, but (laughs) was surprised. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm very curious to know how you built this this universe, because it's really interesting that this is an AU, which is actually really perfect because you not having that many ties to actual like canon content, the AU route, perfect, right? Perfect for you. And also really just perfect for what you were trying to do here. But I was really curious about how you got from the prompt that you found to what you created, because when you look at that original prompt, Many elements of your story are in that prompt. I can see how you got there from the prompt. But there's also things that happen in the story or tropes that you include that I feel like weren't necessarily explicitly stated in the original prompt. And I was just wondering, like, how did you go about the world building for this story? How did those particular tropes end up in your story in the series and all of that? I just I want to know how you got there. That's so fascinating to me. So... The, the original prompt is, you know, Warlord Geralt receives Yaskira's tribute to appease him. There are awful rumors about Geralt. We know they aren't legit. Angst with a happy ending. And I looked at that, and I looked at what I knew of the canons, and I went, Geralt Rivia is famously uninterested in claiming power for himself, in taking command, in choosing between two evils. How the heck do I make him a warlord? That makes no sense. And of course, now that I've asked myself the question, now I have to figure out the answer, right? The whole warlord tribute thing hits a lot of my personal like power dynamic and explicit consent. And how do you get explicit consent given the power dynamic? All of those things are really interesting to me. And so I'm looking at the prompt and going, this is a really appealing prompt because it hits a lot of those buttons for me. But how the heck do you make Geralt a warlord? This man does not warlord. (laughs) 
no, no, no. He has no interest he in has politics no interest. or like anything. Yeah, exactly. And so now that I've asked myself the question, now I have to figure out the answer, you know? And so I had to build a world in which this person would have made that choice, which is where the world building comes in, right? Is, okay, how how do I get there or hear from there, basically? Like, I have the place I want to end. What had to happen before that to get here? There are other authors out there who are very good authors who could have just looked at this and gone, Warlord Geralt, Tribute Yaskier, let's get to the smut, and done this in 10,000 words and been done. I have great respect for those people. I can't do that. <laughs> um, I need to know why the people I'm writing about are interested in getting to bed with each other, and I need to know how the heck they got there. The Accidental Warlord is not the first time or the last time that I end up writing a lot of backstory to get to the smut. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the backstory tends to get a life of its own and it's a whole thing. But I had to find a way to put Geralt in that position. And basically what I had to do is go back, say, okay, we're before Blaviken, we're before the tournament, we're before the sacking, we're before the incredible tragedy of Geralt's life. What if he made a different choice fairly young or fairly early before all of this tragedy? And that choice was monsters can be human too, or humans can be monsters. See, and isn't that brilliant though? Because like, isn't that the underlying question of all fan fiction? What if? Exactly. And so this one, I'm like, okay, so that so the the starter for this is gotta be what if humans who are acting monstrously count as monsters? If I've constructed myself a Geralt who can ask that question, then I can set up this whole thing. And then I, you know, okay, how did we get here? And here's the, you know, here's the plot, and here's the storyline, and here's the backstory, and okay, now I can give you get Yaskir. Now I can put Yaskir into this position. But I mean, that's why it's the accidental warlord is like, this is not a Geralt who went, I'm going to maraud across the continent. This is a Geralt who went, I'm going to kill one monster. <laughs> you know, what's super funny about that is when I was first introduced to the existence of your your series, right? And all I had to go off of was the title of your series, <laughs> you know? So I understood intellectually based off the title that his being a warlord was somehow not intentional, right? Like, <laughs> there was something accidental about that. But I don't think that I realized before reading it just how accidental it was. I still feel like I went into it expecting something a little more deliberate. And I'm not sure why I expected that. But I was delighted when I got in there and realized just how accidental this was. Because that just made it like 10 times sweeter for me to realize like, Oh, he really did not mean for this to happen. Is <laughs> this poor honorable idiot who's like, I'm going to kill one monster. It happens to be a king, so I need backup. Shit. <laughs> yes. Total shit, right? Total shit. And, and, you know, you do a really wonderful job with the supplementals that you included in this series of showing us how 
the whole structure and society that he's built around his being a warlord, you know, like the pack part, he didn't just snap his fingers and it all appeared, you know, out of thin air. You show us in this methodical way how his community was built step by step by step. And it wasn't this overnight thing. It was, you know, a lot of people's efforts, a lot of people's contributions, you know, so over the years this happened. So by the time Yaskir gets there, he's seeing sort of like, you know, the after effects of all of that planning and all of, <laughs> you know, the changes and things that happen. But yeah, it was just super fascinating to me that you took the time to show us like, this didn't happen overnight, you know, it was just so cool and refreshing. I think, to see something like that. I loved it. Thank you. You asked about found family. Yeah, found family seems to be like this huge trope that's a theme across the whole series. And I was like, how How did you get there? Because, you know, again, I don't feel like I saw found family in the original kink meme. So I was like, how did you decide to put that in there? Of course, I'm so glad that you did. I mean, found family is like one of my favorites of all time. Um, and strikes a chord with so many of us out there. So not surprising that so many people glommed onto it. But at what point did you decide that this was going to have found family in it? Honestly, it wasn't so much a decision as just that found family is one of the things that I think it just sort of creeps into everything I write is just like this community, this interwoven, broken, healing community is just part of this. But specifically for Witcher, it's you've got these schools full of mutated into not quite humanity anymore warriors. They've got no outside family ties, most of them. When they do, those outside family ties are incredibly traumatic. And we see over and over again that, sure, there's all these like, oh, Witchers are emotionless rumors, but those are bullshit. We see Geralt having all of the emotions. We see in the games you get his brothers having all of the emotions. So clearly the witchers are emotionless thing is something that we're putting on as protective armor almost. And so if you put a whole bunch of people in one place and expect them to live together, even leaving aside the incredible trauma of their lives, they're going to form bonds. That's what humans do. And you've got them calling each other brother. But you've also got some hierarchy going. You've got trainer and trainee. You've got elder and youngster. You've got the questions of do you bond with these children who are likely going to die or do you not bond with them? And both of those are a different form of trauma. You know, how do you interact with the people who trained you into what you are and therefore inflicted huge trauma on you, but also did it in order to try and help you stay alive and also have been through the same trauma themselves. You know, there's just so much going on there. And people form bonds. It's what we do. So there has to be some sort of found family going on. There have to be units that have formed. You know, we get Gerald and Eskel, who are, I believe at one point in canon, described as two drops of water. We get, you know, the games show us Gerald and Eskel and Lambert. And them being interacting with each other in extremely f familiar and familial ways. We get Vesemir being something parental, but also are you their superior? Are you their equal? What's going on here? 
you get Letho and his bond to his Viper brothers, who are the last of their school. Canon has so many hooks for found family. So I attached it. Yeah. Like you said, it just seems like it was just this natural progression, like the characters just sort of fell into it as a natural consequence of these situations that you put them in. I love that. You know, one of the things that I really love about that, too, is I feel like perhaps, and of course, I can't speak for the whole fandom, I can only speak for myself, but perhaps one of the reasons why people felt so connected to this series is I feel like in many ways, this is a fix it. Oh, it's absolutely a fix it. Right? 100%. Because you were talking about um, moments of tragedy that you had to bypass in order to like create this world and create this story. Um, so when you kind of look at the Witcher canon, <laughs> sort of zoomed out, you see so much trauma and so much loss and so much grief. It is tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Yes, it's just permeating the entire, you know, story. And so what you did was you imagined this world where a lot of that doesn't have to happen, especially to the Witchers. Yeah. I've always felt like in Witcher canon, even just the concept of Witchers is sort of a tragic thing because, you know, by the time we're dropped into TV show canon, a lot of the Witchers are gone. Yeah. They've been killed. They've been, you know, lots of tragic things have happened to them. So they're like a, they're a dying people. And so it's like you imagined this alternative, (laughs) this alternative world, these alternative circumstances where, they're so much more united and they have this structure that they've built so that they don't have to die so tragically anymore. They get to live and they get to have stories and they get to have meaningful connections with other people and they still get to do their witchering, you know, they still get to help people and and do all of those things and be, you know, helpful out in the world, but it's not so tragic. And I feel like so many of us held on to that so tightly because like, especially during the pandemic, when so many of us were losing people in real life, we needed a story where that didn't have to happen. Yeah, no. And it's very much a fix it. It's very much a fantasy, specifically the fantasy of good governance. It's very much a comfort fic. It's meant to be a world in which things go right. Yes. I felt like I was safe in your hands as a reader because I knew that no matter what situation came up, like Geralt was going to handle it in the most honorable way possible. The Witchers were going to handle it in the most honorable way possible. That was so comforting to me. It's going to be all right. However traumatic it is, the ending will be happy. The people you have come to care about will survive. There will be comfort. There will be joy. People have described my writing to me as being the writing equivalent of a warm blanket and a mug of hot chocolate. And that is exactly what I want to be putting out in the world. Have a warm blanket, have a mug of hot chocolate, sit down, be comforted. Okay. I feel like I need to ask you about that because I'm so fascinated. That makes me feel so joyful inside to hear you say that. Like, why for you? Why is that so important for you to put that particularly out into the world? The world is so large and so full of terrible things. And 
it feels like there are more terrible things every day. And because we're all constantly connected to the internet, we're all constantly inundated with those terrible things. You open the news, you open Tumblr, you open your Discord server, you go on what used to be Twitter, and there are terrible things lining up for you to look at. They range from the world-destroyingly catastrophic to the extremely personal. But they're always there, and there seem to be so many more of them every day. I am one small person. I can't fix the world. I can do what I can and no more. And what I can do is try to provide joy and comfort to the people around me. The number of people around me got a lot larger very suddenly when I started writing The Accidental Warlord, and very unexpectedly. Yes, yes. You know, I wanted to ask you about that sometime today, and so I'm just going to ask it now. When you started dropping The Accidental Warlord, like how quickly did it blow up for you? I mean, was that a pretty fast, like overnight kind of a thing? It absolutely felt like it was overnight. Let me just... So apparently I posted it in March. And I woke up the next day to 20 comments, which was a lot more than I expected. Like the first chapter, I posted the first chapter in early Mar in late March. And like I said, I expected this to be a flash in the pan. The fact that I woke up the next morning and was like, there's a lot of comments on this was immediately flabbergasting. And then the fact that I finished it and suddenly there were all these comments saying, give us more. What happens next? What happens to this person? What happens to that person? Where does this go from here? And I'm just sitting here at my computer going, I don't have a what happens next. I thought this was a one shot. <laughs> But people started asking questions, and sometimes those questions would make me go, oh, I think I know the answer to that, or I think I can figure out the answer to that, or oh, that's really interesting. I wonder what is going on in that character's head right now. And, you know, here we are 47 works later in the series. <laughs> yes. You know, and I love that because it sounds like... You know, we were talking earlier a little bit about storytelling and the things that storytelling can be. And it's always fascinated me that storytelling can be a conversation. Always, always, always a conversation. Yes, a conversation, right? And so like you're having this conversation with your community and it fascinates me that they were able to give their input and their perspectives and their questions out into this universe that you built and in a way sort of influenced the direction that it went and the different stories that appear in it and everything. And I think that that's so cool that it was, in a way, also a community effort. It absolutely was. And I am a bribable creature. People leave me comments and kudos and I go, I guess I should make more of this. <laughs> she just admits it, right? <laughs> Happy comments are what keep me writing. <laughs> of course, though. Of course, right? Because, you know, you're having that exchange. It's a conversation. 
it's a conversation and people keep wanting to talk. So I'm like, well, I guess I'll keep providing. But like also the fact that so many of the comments are people saying this brought me comfort, this brought me joy, this made me feel seen, this made me feel welcome. This was a distraction from a terrible time or a catharsis after a grief. Knowing that I'm putting that out into the world makes me feel like I'm doing something to help counteract at least a little bit the constant stream of terribleness. Yes, and you were, and you are. I can't get over the fact, as we're sitting here talking, my brain keeps reminding me as we're discussing these things, that you literally posted your first chapter of this series in March of 2020, the month that COVID happened. And it's because of COVID. Yes, right. I started writing this because I was in the Witcher fandom. I started being in the Witcher fandom because of COVID, because I was stuck in the house trying to find something to distract me. Yes. And so many people out there were looking for that same comfort and that same distraction. And they found your story. And I put out this story that was like, here, have comfort, have the fantasy of a just ruler, have the have a place where people are, are made welcome. And it struck that chord. Of course, we always need good comforting stories like that, but especially at that moment. And it kind of segues a little bit into one of my other questions. I had wanted to know if the series went in the direction that you intended all along, (laughs) or was it sort of a surprise? The fact that it is a series was a surprise. (laughs) Yes, it doesn't sound like that was your intention all along. Like it kind of became that as the community kept interacting and asking questions and things. Um, I'm also kind of wondering about elements of the story and which ones meant the most to you? Because, you know, we've talked about found family. We've talked about joy and safety and comfort and all of these different themes and tropes and things like that. There's lots more, too. I I know that we cover, you know, some of your fics cover grief in a way that I found very moving. So I'm just kind of wondering, as you think about all of the themes and tropes that your series has in it with all of the different stories, Which of those themes and tropes mean the most to you? I think the part of the series that means the most to me is developing Kaer Morhen in the series as a place where people can find a home, as a community where you don't have to fit yourself into a little box you can be who you are and the people around you will accept and appreciate that. So one of the things I'm doing fairly consciously is trying to make sure that there are characters who are extremely different from each other, who are not interchangeable and saying, this is still a place where you can be yourself and be made welcome for that. Yes, I've noticed that it doesn't seem to matter who the character is per se or what little quirks they have that they feel make them unlovable. They all find a place at the Caramoran that you have created. They all find a place in this community. And I think that that's such a powerful message because as we grow up and we are out into the world, (laughs) 
we're so tempted to feel like we're like fundamentally unlovable and having that fantasy, that place that exists, even if it's just in our imagination <laughs> right. of a place where we can be completely and utterly known and accepted. One of the things that brings me personally a great deal of joy about the series and about the fandom which has sprung up around the series is the number of people who have created original characters to add to Care Morin. Yes, because this is the perfect situation or scenario to do that, right? Right. Who have said, it feels a little bit sometimes like, this is very silly, like I've bought one of those like castles you can buy in Italy for $10 and a promise that you're going to do something with it and cleaned it out and fixed it up and, you know, put curtains in the windows and swept out the great hall and thrown open the doors. And people are coming in. People are making a home. People are saying, oh, look, I could revamp this room into a, you know, sauna. It'll be great. And putting together bedrooms and making music and making it come alive. And the fact that I'm sitting here going, okay, this is my castle, but I've opened the doors and here you all are, is so good. Yeah, it's like your own personal field of dreams. You built it and they came. And they came. And I'm just kind of sitting in the back of the hall going, I was not expecting this big a crowd. <laughs> but I'm so glad that people are writing OCs with different quirks, with different disabilities, with different abilities, and saying, I know I can bring this person to Care Morin. I can write them there and they will be welcome because that's what you've made is a place where people are welcome. That means a lot to me. Yeah, there's something so profound about that. I can't get over how well your universe lends itself to that particular exercise and how healing that must be for all of these, you know, all of these writers out there who want a safe place for their OC to go. Yeah. Bring them to Kermoran, find a bedroom, pick a witcher, have fun. <laughs> yes, and they will be loved. They will be loved the way they were always meant to be. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that sort of like segues a little bit into my question here about like POVs. I think that's so beautiful that that your universe does lend itself to so many different perspectives. So I love that there are all of these like beautiful fics that are being written by others where they can add to that POV experience or that POV perspective with different characters and things like that. And then, of course, you have added tremendously <laughs> to this series with like so many different one shots and, and different things like that that seem to be focused around different particular POVs from different characters. I remember telling you before we started recording that I think that the one from Vesemir was the one that touched me the most. I'm wondering which POV has meant the most to you as you've gone through writing the series? Serret's, actually. Really? Why yeah. is that? Serret is the first time I've written from the point of view of a trans woman. I made the character trans myself in, in canon as far as I know Serret is male. But Serret's story is the first time I've, I've done that. And I tried very hard to make sure I did so as respectfully as possible. I had a handful of extremely good sensitivity readers who helped me make the story something I am deeply proud of having written. 
And the reason it means so much to me is that the comments I have gotten from trans people who say that it made them feel seen, made them feel loved, made them feel welcome, and then also from cis people who are saying that it made them more empathetic, it made them understand better what trans people go through. The fact that I have been able to write something that had that much meaning to that many people is incredibly powerful for me. Like, it's overwhelming for me to be like, I made a thing, I can be proud of the thing, the thing has made other people comforted. I wrote this as a as a love letter to this strange, prickly viper of a woman and other people love her and other people feel seen and other people feel made welcome because of what I wrote. Oh, I love that. To know that that one is the one that meant the most to you. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, it's interesting when I think about all of these things. And as I'm hearing you talk about these different experiences, I had been curious to know how the accidental warlord experience was different from your experiences creating other fic series. Because when I go through your AO3 profile, I can see that you've got other series, you know. So I thought, oh, I wonder how Warlord has been a different experience than some of these other series. And I feel like many parts of that question have been answered. As we go. <laughs> yeah, as we go. But I'm just wondering, is there anything that we haven't covered about writing the Accidental Warlord series that has been different from your other writing experiences that you wanted to touch on? One of the things, honestly, is the, um, and I think you mentioned this earlier with the number of like one shots and side POVs and stuff. A lot of my other series are, I don't want to say one note because that feels like I'm running my own writing down, but they're telling a very specific story. There's not a lot of variation. And then the external warlord, I've got the long plotty stuff. I've got the, the ones that are just straight up romances. I've got the individual POVs where it's just like, what's going on in this person's life? I've got the the little like ficlet collection where it's like, here's 300 words about, you know, a random little thing that's happening in a corner. The variation of what's going on in the external warlord and what counts as an external warlord fic is... It's very different from the other series where it's like, okay, this is, you know, this is one kind of story for this series. And it's also the one that has the most plot. I do, in fact, now know where it is going. Um, <laughs> I have an overarching plot. I know how it ends. So just the fact that it has that arc to it is different from a lot of my other series. Now, when you say you know where it's going and you know how it's going to end, that implies that it's not finished yet. You've got more. It's not done. Ooh, okay. I'm so excited. I wasn't sure, you know, sometimes you're just not sure when you're looking at a series going, is this done or not? I don't know. Um, so it sounds like there's more. I'm so excited. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, no, there's, I have a long fic with Rose right now for beta. There's... Another in-universe year of fix that need to get written. Oh, okay. So are you anticipating that you'll be finished sometime like at the 
tail end of 2024. That's an in-universe year, not a writing year. <laughs> okay. Okay. I wasn't sure what we were talking it's, about. Here. It's, it's going to be a while. Where we are currently in, in the external warlord, the characters have agreed that in the coming in-universe year, Geralt needs to go on progress through his various countries. So I need to write that. That sounds so cool, but also very ambitious. That's a lot of like continent to cover. <laughs> uh, mm, yes. I'm not letting myself think about how big it is. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, we're not going to go there. <laughs> I'm going to do this oh one piece at God. a time <laughs> and not think about the other pieces. <laughs> yes. It's a journey of a thousand steps, right? Every step is its own step. <laughs> yes. Yes, but that's exciting for us, though. But yeah, no, I know where it's going. I know where it finishes. I know how it finishes. Uh, I've actually written the last fic. Oh, my gosh. I have not written the intervening fics, but I've written the last one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. Oh, did you always have that plan in your mind? Or did this come about like rather recently? as far as you knowing where it was all going? It started getting a proper, like, I know where this is going and how I'm getting there. Probably somewhere around Twirl Three Notes, which is, I guess, the sixth fic I ever wrote for this series. And I really sort of figured out, like, where this is going and how I think it's getting there somewhere around the shadow of the mountains. Okay. This has been ongoing for you then for three years. So we're going into the fourth year. You were talking earlier in this conversation about how energized you get from interaction from the community, right? The readers and, and people co contributing. Um, I'm kind of curious, just like what your uh, experience has been with the, the, the stamina, I guess, with this series, because you know, a lot of writers talk about feeling burnt out at a certain point or losing interest at a certain point. Like they have, you know, sometimes there can be issues with just the ability to keep going and everything. And I'm just wondering, has that ever been a challenge for you with this particular series? Or do you just draw a lot of energy from the excitement of the community? What does that look like? It absolutely is. I'm, I'm sure you've noticed I have slowed down substantially in posting this specific series. So it absolutely is like, okay, as it gets bigger, as it gets more complex, as there's more things to keep track of, it gets harder. I think it really helps that I'm not only writing Accidental Warlord. I'm writing, as you say, many other series and one shots. I do flash fic fairly regularly. The way my writing process, such as it is and what there is of it works, I bounce around a lot. And so if I'm starting to feel like, oh, this this Warlord fic is just not cooperating, I'll go write something else for a while. Oh, to kind of keep the juices flowing. Right. Keep that uh, creative energy up. You know, I'm, I, I'm not up for plot today. I'm going to go write a smutty one shot. I'm not up for smutty one shots today. Where's this plot going? I know some people have to have, like, I do this this one doc and I write it till it's done and then I, I can do another one. And I'm like, I have like eight docs open. <laughs> We're going to bounce. Uh, yeah. But see, that works for you. And I love that with fan fiction, you have the creative freedom to do that. There's no agent tapping you on the shoulder and being like, where's the next part of Warlord? It was due yesterday. 
nobody's making you do that. I have people like <laughs> coming into my like Tumblr asks and being like, so warlord? Um <laughs> which is like I'm like, okay, yes, it's 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 with beta. <laughs> yeah. I'm working on it. I'm getting there. Yeah. <laughs> it's the the next part is well over 70k. God help me. Oh my God. How exciting though. People can rest easy knowing that it's being worked on. It's not like an abandoned thing. It's happening. We just need to be patient. It takes a while and I jump around a lot, but I'm not done with it. I'm not planning to be done with it. And if I ever do get to the point where I'm like, cannot do any more of this, I will post the end of it. I will say this is how it ends. I knew we were in safe hands. No matter what happens, I knew we were in safe hands. That's super good to hear. We can be patient. I know we can. So, but that's super exciting. You know, one of the things that I've loved in our conversation today is just hearing about your, like, some of your favorite memories associated with writing and creating Accidental Warlord. I loved finding out for the first time that you have no connection to canon. That was such a treat. I loved hearing about, like, how baffled you were when this blew up overnight and the reception it's gotten. And, you know, we were talking before recording about the length of other people's fix that have been written inspired by this particular series. I've been in fandom for 27 years, and I have never seen any fic, any series that has inspired a longer list of fan fiction than yours. I don't think I have either. And I, I have been in fandom for a while now. And every so often, I'll go to Wither Conquering Air and scroll down to the end and look at that list and go, okay. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about how many languages the series has been um, translated into, and you've got a Discord server. I mean, there's all of this activity happening around this series that you've created, this world that you made. You know, I'm so fond of the way that you are just so baffled by it, you know. Um, I would love to hear if you have any more favorite memories associated with writing and creating this series, I would love to hear those if you have any more that you wanted to discuss and talk about. I don't know that I have any very specific, concrete memories. For me, the the series is associated with just the number of really cool people I've gotten to meet through it. My beta, a number of extremely dear friends, the slightly terrifying number of people on the Warlord server, who are you all and why are you here? Um, I love you, but why are you here? <laughs> we covered that already. Right. I built my castle and you came in and I didn't wasn't expecting this many of you. Um, <laughs> See, fortunately, though, in your series, you've built a system where there's food enough for everybody. There is food enough for everyone. And, and we love Marlene a lot. Yeah. Shout out to Marlene for feeding everybody. Uh, the <laughs> server has topped 1,500 people. Okay. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. And, you know, I love that you're talking about people. It's connection that saves us in the end. It is. It's connection that makes what we do worth what we're doing. So the fact that you've been able to make so much connection with other people in the community through this endeavor is beautiful. When you look back at how things were before you started creating this series and then look at your life now, do you even recognize it sometimes? It's a very stark difference. It's like, I didn't know these people. I hadn't written this many hundreds of thousands of words. <laughs> it's an incredible difference to look at, you know, 
four years ago and go, I didn't even know what the heck a witcher was. <laughs> and here I am being like, okay, you get a witcher and you get a witcher and you get two witchers. <laughs> <laughs> Because I like you. You're like the Oprah Winfrey of witchers. I love it. (laughs) Everybody gets a witcher. It's good for the witchers. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, just hearing you talk about how touched you've been with the reception of the series and how touched you've been with people sending you messages and giving you comments about how the series has touched them and what it means to them in their real lives and how it has impacted them as people? Absolutely. The people who have said, this story helped me through a hard time, or, you know, this story helped me find catharsis after grief, or this story made me feel seen in a really valuable way. The I think two people so far who have said this story helped me with my dissertation. Um... (laughs) Really? That's amazing. Yes. Those are baffling, but delightful. Um, Delightful. I love that. But just all of these people saying, this has helped me, this has comforted me, this has given me joy in a hard time. Those are what I go back to and go, this is why I'm doing this. I write because I have to write because... Otherwise, the words get stuck in my head and I feel miserable. But I put it out there for other people to read because I am doing good in the world. I am bringing other people comfort. And I know about it because they tell me and then I get to feel good about it. Yes, what you do matters. It matters. It does. If nothing else, I want people to remember that and I want people to understand that and hear that. Because I can say it until I'm blue in the face. But like you've experienced it. A thing I have noticed is sometimes it's not the fic that you put a lot of time and effort into that really resonates with people. It's the one that you dashed off in 20 minutes. You know how it is. You you write something quick and funny and then people are like, oh, this is incredible. But like you never know what's going to hit somebody just right. You never know which of your stories might resonate with someone in an incredibly important way. And so it's important, like, and I'm saying this as knowingly as someone sitting here going, I have so many comments, I literally can't reply to them all. But even the stories that don't get comments, even the ones that don't get a lot of hits, means something to somebody. It hits somebody. And it's so important to put that out into the world and make that connection. Yes. I've always said that you just never know. You don't. You just never know how your story and the way that you tell it is going to hit somebody right where they needed it. I have read fics from 20 years ago that are still with me all these years later, you know? Absolutely. You just never know. And it does matter. It matters. So, you know, that's always been my message to fan fiction writers out there. Keep going. Keep writing. Keep sharing. Absolutely. You never know who it's going to touch. Exactly. So my last, like, big question of the day. (laughs) I'm so curious about this. We just said you've been doing this for years now, just with this particular series. I want to know what you've learned about yourself in the process of writing Accidental Warlord. I've learned I should be very careful about kink meme prompts. 
<laughs> there it is, folks. We can pack it in. We can go home. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm only half joking there because, uh, oops. I've learned that this level of community engagement really is what keeps me going, what keeps me writing. I've learned a lot about sort of the themes that always seem to come out in my work. I'm real strong on the found family. I'm real strong on the hurt comfort that's mostly comfort. I like giving my characters nice things. I've learned that I can hyper-focus this deeply on something I know nothing about, (laughs) which is a fascinating thing to learn about myself, actually. Yeah, I would say. It's like, oh, okay, I'm four years deep into Witcher fandom. When did that happen? (laughs) Accidentally, apparently. (laughs) absolutely accidentally like i'm just like okay um that's actually super funny when you think about it you accidentally fell into witcher fandom and then wrote about an accidental warlord like come on the thing is that warlord Geralt doesn't talk to me like i've written one tiny ficlet in his point of view i think he's pissed that i made him a warlord (laughs) but i have a lot of fellow feeling for him (laughs) because we're both sitting here going how did i get here What do I do with this? How do I do the most good and the least harm with the absurd amount of power I've just been given? Right. That's so fascinating to me in an esoteric kind of way, almost. And I won't go into that, but I'm deeply fascinated by how this all shook out for you. If you ever figure out an explanation, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that the parallels are way too interesting to be an accident. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) You know, like, there is some kind of fate here. (laughs) If there's some cosmic writer up there going, okay, I didn't mean to do that, (laughs) then I will be very amused, honestly. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, the whole thing is amusing, no matter how you look at it, no matter which angle you choose to focus on. It's very funny. (laughs) It is. It's funny. (laughs) But I love that. I love that you've been able to like discover different new things about yourself. I think that anytime that we embark on some sort of creative endeavor, we're inevitably going to learn new things about ourselves. And I think that that exploration also matters, you know? So my last question of the day for you today, do you have any other fan fiction writers that you'd like to shout out on the podcast today? I have a list. Oh, yes, please. Give me the list. I read widely. I read a lot. I'm going to shout out specifically Dira Sudis because her work was part of how I ended up in the Witcher fandom. I'm not sure she knows that I'm blaming her for that, but I absolutely am. Uh, The amazing Formless Void Beast did a work inspired by my warlord AU, but in a completely different world, a completely original world with some amazing world building. It's called For Want of a Jewel. All of their other work is also amazing, but that one, obviously, I feel very pleased by because I helped inspire it, you know. My dear friend Kimi Kocha has moved on to non-Witcher fandoms, but she did some amazing stuff in the Witcher fandom, and she's got a flash fic called A Lemon by Any Other Name that I go read every time I need to laugh hysterically because it's so funny, so funny. Gremble did a couple of remixes of Accidental Warlord stories from different points of view. I read them and went, oh, okay, you you probably have better insight into these people than I do. 
which is cool. I love it. Bright-Eyed Jill and Hobbit Dragon work together on this amazing long AU called A Knight's Guide to Courting Witchers. And it's got Geralt as a knight being married, forcibly married to uh, Eskel, um, and the two of them having to negotiate that. It's great. Yes, I've read that. I love those two writers. They're so good. It was so good. I like all their stuff, but I wanted to call that one out specifically because it's really cool. My very dear friend, Heaven Alchemist, wrote a story, uh, Cold as Desert Starlight, which is mostly canon compliant. It follows a group of OC Viper Witchers through, I think, the game plot line, like what they're doing while Geralt is off being Geralt. It hurts in the absolute best way. It's plotty. It's amazingly written. It's very painful, you know, have something waiting on the side so that you can like read something fluffy afterwards, but it's amazing. My friend Twisted Mind does a lot of fandom stuff in multiple fandoms. Uh, she does very good smut in the Witcher fandom. My friend LJ, who goes by Veolasium Vitalina Viridis, writes amazing Witcher smut. And I go and reread stuff by Castellan 02 and Jack Ironsides pretty regularly. They do some really cool, sort of fairly canon-compliant world-building and character exploration. And I, I just really like their stuff a lot. I'm going to stop there because that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so perfect, though. Thank you so much for those shout-outs. We'll make sure to get links up on the show notes to those folks so that people can check them out. In a splick of fix, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been wanting to talk to you for so long, and this just felt like a dream come true. I appreciate you so much being here today and talking to me about all these things. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was my first podcast, and it was a lovely experience. It was my pleasure. Check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.